gathered in the way that we are today. It's already been mentioned how richly God has blessed us, showered upon us the physical blessings of sunshine and those things about us. And also, of course, the magnificence of the spiritual gifts, the blessings that we enjoy in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the next few moments this morning, could I invite each of us to give thought to the progression of faith in the life of a man named Nicodemus. That phrase, that topic, I hope will in many ways encapsulate the fullness of the lesson. Why don't we look this morning in detail at how the faith in a man grew over the course of time. And of course, during a part of that lesson, we're going to very personally ask of ourselves, is my faith growing? Certainly we'll need to be honest with ourselves about that. But as we look at the life of Nicodemus, we'll at least be prompted to think about what the Bible says about him. This first slide will be an introductory one. We're all aware of the importance and, in fact, the vitality of faith. But without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The famous words of Hebrews 11, verse number 6. And therefore, if you and I, if our faith is not as it ought to be, we should appreciate the fact that our journey toward heaven is not going to be as it should be. Without faith, you cannot please Him. You'll notice then about the middle of that slide, just another reminder of how significant faith truly is. Three times in the New Testament it is said that the just shall live by faith. One of them in Galatians 3.11. In the midst of that Galatian letter... Paul, in fact, very strongly asserted, it shall be by a livelihood built squarely and continuously on faith that people who please God shall live. I hope that with those things already mentioned, why don't we then begin to look at Nicodemus. Be turning to the gospel according to John, please. And we'll first give thought to chapter number 3. John chapter 3. Three times in the gospel according to John, Nicodemus is mentioned. Three times there is a scenario related to a portion of his life. Three times a snapshot, if you please, of a particular interaction that he had in some way with Jesus. Let's look at them in chronological order. First of all, in chapter number 3, I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll only read the first five verses of the chapter. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What information do we glean about Nicodemus? I have merely summarized some of it. Would you please note with me that we are told he was a Pharisee. We are furthermore told that he was a ruler of the Jews. That by itself is very significant. 
In fact, later we shall learn more explicitly what that means. The Jews had a ruling council, a ruling committee, if you please, named the Sanhedrin Court. Later we learn that Nicodemus was sufficiently influential, sufficiently powerful, that he was a member of that court. Therefore, you'll notice, it was an exceedingly high place of honor. When this man came to Jesus the way that he did, don't you and I think that he was just some common Jew? He was a highly respected rabbi. Notice, in fact, how Jesus referred to him in verse number 10 of this chapter. Jesus answered and said to him, Art thou a master of Israel? That word master means teacher. He was a highly regarded Jewish rabbi. He instructed, he taught, he in fact was one to whom others would come for instruction and counsel. Not only that, it is quite likely he was rather wealthy. I say that based on later on, it was he who of his own expense brought a hundred pounds worth of myrrh and aloes and helped anoint the body of Jesus. Again, it would not seem that just a common person would have near enough money to buy that much myrrh and aloes. May I say, it would seem that Nicodemus then, not only influential and not only rather high in prestige, he also was well-to-do. Furthermore, let's go back to the text. What did this man do in chapter 3? The text says in verse 2, he came to Jesus. That's commendable. In fact, that is highly applaudable. But the next two words are, by night. Why did Nicodemus come by night? The text doesn't say. May I suggest you and I, quite frankly, would, dro would drop into the realm of speculation to say, you could paint a rather dramatically good picture of Nicodemus, maybe in light of his busy schedule and the Lord's busy schedule. Maybe he chose to come by night just so he would interrupt Jesus the less. If that's so, that's commendable. It could well be, though, that he came by night because he didn't want anybody else to know he was coming to Jesus. If that's so, that doesn't reflect nearly as well on him. May I say that three times the Gospel of John mentions he came by night. In the context, it would seem that that is a strong part of our lesson today. May I suggest perhaps Nicodemus came at night because he was in a highly influential Jewish position. If they knew that he was a defender of Jesus, if they knew he was a follower of Jesus, if they knew he had interest in Jesus... Perhaps his reputation would have been shattered. Perhaps his influence on the Sanhedrin court would have been questioned. And perhaps he might even in time have lost that position. The three contexts in which we see it would seem to suggest the reason he came by night was more along that line. Let's close this slide by noting this. When he did come, what did he say? Notice with me again verse 2. It says, Rabbi, we know. He didn't say, I know. He said, we know. Nicodemus did not single himself out on this occasion. In a very generic, perhaps even a general way, he complimented Jesus. Lord, we know. All who witness are aware of the fact that you must be from God. Nobody can do these miracles you do unless God's with him. 
Did you notice he did not personally include himself in this? Leading me to make this statement. Seems to me that says a lot about his placement of faith at this point in his life. He had enough faith to know he was interested in Jesus, but he didn't have enough faith to be personally convicted of Him yet. He did not have enough internal faith to, in fact, put himself on the line, if you please, to call into question his placement and the reputation others might have of him. No wonder as we close that slide, perhaps it leads us to notice how Jesus reacted to him. Haven't you always been amazed at what the Lord immediately said? Verily, verily, verse 3, Jesus said, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now here was a man who had taken the liberty of coming to see Jesus. He had made whatever sacrifice it took to come at night. And yet the Lord abruptly and very powerfully said, I'm telling you, Nicodemus, you or anybody else, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom. Perhaps to you and me that sounds harsh. Maybe it sounds too direct. Why didn't he first compliment Nicodemus and perhaps in other ways admire him for coming? The Lord got to the point. Nicodemus needed to be born again. What he had done wasn't good enough. This kind of appreciation he had shown only leads us to conclude those thoughts on this slide. I'd like to do it in part by calling to your attention one of the songs in our book. It's based on this very passage. Song number 797, would you note the words of it with me? We'll not sing it at the time, but the words are so powerful. In context, as Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, this is what He said. And Let me read verse 1. A ruler once came to Jesus by night to ask Him the way of salvation and right. The Master made answer in words true and plain, Ye must be born again. Verse 2, Ye children of men, attend to the word so solemnly uttered by Jesus the Lord, and let not the message to you be in vain. Ye must be born again. Verse 3, O ye who would enter the glorious rest, and sing with a ransom the song of the blessed, the life everlasting, if ye would obtain, ye must be born again. And then the chorus reads, Ye must be born again, ye must be born again. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, ye must be born again. This coming Wednesday nights or singing night, we may well try that song as a part of our singing efforts of that night. What a powerful sentiment. At least at this point, can't we now say, as you come to the next point, Jesus, as He had made the statement to Nicodemus about needing to be reborn, Nicodemus stated something foolish. How can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born after he's old? Well, of course that's not possible. We understand apart from a particular miraculous working of God, that would never be possible. Jesus rather quickly simply stated this. Except you be born of water and spirit, you cannot see the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom. Now, that exposition, this little snippet from the life of Nicodemus, has pointed out to us a man who had an interest, 
but not a personal conviction yet. He had an interest enough to come by night, but not enough to publicly show himself as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus. Holding that in mind, let's turn to chapter 7. A little bit later in, in the life of Nicodemus, let's see how he reacted to Jesus. A moment ago, it was read to us, as Brother Dennis did that from John chapter 7. He read verses 45 to 52. Let me provide a little bit of background as we then prepare to look more carefully at that set of verses. You'll notice that several months, it's a little bit difficult to pinpoint it, but it may well be slightly over a year has passed since the events of John chapter 3 and those of chapter 7. Needless to say, in that amount of time, what things in the life of Nicodemus have changed? What particulars may now be different? Has his faith grown any? Has he drawn closer to the Lord in that period of time? Let's study about these details. You may notice, in that intervening period of time, the Jewish leaders have developed a rather notable hatred for Jesus. On many occasions, He has directly taught something that called into question their integrity. More than once, He's healed somebody on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders didn't like it, and Jesus called them on the carpet, if you please, for it. Remember, He had already told them, if an ox fall into the ditch, wouldn't you help him out on the Sabbath, and yet you are upset with me for healing a man on that day? You may remember, they were furious with Him. Because in public eye, he had in fact called them into question more than once. Their hatred was so great. I would call to your attention chapter 7, verses 14 and following. I'll only read verse number 30. But verse 30 of chapter 7 says, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. They wanted to take him. Get him out of the public eye so that they could teach their business and all, everybody would look to them for guidance. But at this point, note verse 32. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. They were officers. They said, look, you go arrest Jesus. You bring him back here. And then when these officers came... Verse number 46 says, When they came back, they were empty-handed. They did not bring Jesus back. And the Pharisaical leader said, Why didn't you bring Him? Verse number 45 says, Why have you not brought Him? The officers answered in verse 46, Never man spake like this man. Even those Jewish officers were so enamored, so impressed so amazed by what Jesus taught that they said, Look, no man has ever spoken like this man. Let's now notice how the officials, the, those above the officers, responded in verse 48, or rather verses 47 and following. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. When those officers came back without Jesus, the religious leaders said, Look, are you also deceived? Why are you following what this man says? 
Why are you giving any interest in it? Have any of us, the Jewish leaders, followed him? Furthermore, all this people who do so, they're cursed. They don't know what they're talking about, and they shouldn't give interest in this man. All those things on the slide brings us to Nicodemus in verse number 50. In this very context, would you now appreciate the placement and the entrance of the words of Nicodemus? Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Notice there, he was one of this ruling Sanhedrin council. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he saith, what he doeth? Would you and I be impressed? Here was a monumental moment in the life of Nicodemus. This council had just given orders to go and to take Jesus, and the officers had came back without him. And now, as these officers were being, in fact, rebuked by the, the leaders, Nicodemus defends Jesus. He said, look, it is the proper and right thing for any course of law to correctly hear his case before you pronounce judgment on him. Nicodemus, in the very presence of his fellow Sanhedrin council members, he urged them, in fact, he rebuked them in a way we do not pronounce judgment on a man before we hear his cause and we hear his case. And yet, isn't that what we are doing with regard to Jesus? We are accusing him and in fact attempting to arrest him and we have not justly heard his cause. What kind of impression do you get of Nicodemus on this occasion? Has his faith grown any since the time of John chapter 3? Let's turn to the next part of our slide. Isn't it fair to say that on one account, Nicodemus did make a statement of law here. It would be right to always hear a case with its facts before pronouncing a matter of judgment. But on this occasion, what Nicodemus said had direct emphasis for Jesus. He was defending Jesus. He helped Jesus. And he did it publicly. Aren't you impressed? He had come to Jesus by night some months earlier, but now he openly defends in a matter of law the case of the Christ. May I suggest to you at the bottom of the slide, we have now encountered a man who in a public way has not only defended Jesus, but has openly helped him. His faith has grown. In that period of time between John chapter 3 and John chapter 7, it would appear that Nicodemus has become more vocal, he has become more committed, he has become more devoted to the one we call Jesus the Christ. For that reason, the last thing on the slide, may we be quick to say his faith had not reached the highest element yet, but it certainly has made steps forward since John chapter 3. One more episode. We've looked at two of them. What's the third occasion when the life of Nicodemus appears in the book of John. Would you turn with me to John chapter 19 and let's look at the last one. The third encounter, John chapter 19. Near the close of that chapter, or in fact far along in it, we have the following statements. Again, if I may do so to maybe bring us historically to the circumstances of the moment. 
the events of Jesus' life are very, very closely drawing to a conclusion as far as His life on earth. By this point, He has already been arrested. He has already appeared in various trials before Annas and Caiaphas. He has already appeared before the various Jewish council that declared Him worthy of death. Furthermore, you notice that the terrible moments of Gethsemane have already come and gone, and Jesus has been crucified. They have nailed Him to a cross, the great and sinless Son of God hanging there, suspended between earth and heaven. In fact, in verse number 30, Jesus makes His final statement on the cross, It is finished. The plan of salvation and the particulars of it have been completed relative to what they are able to do. At that point, He gives up the ghost and dies. But our question is going to be, what happened to His body? It's there where Nicodemus enters. I'd like to read beginning in verse number 38 of John chapter 19. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take, take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. As we reflect on that little set of verses, you'll notice about the middle of that slide, that very afternoon Jesus died. That would have been Thursday afternoon of that week we call the Passion Week. They crucified our Lord. He died. Now, of course, when sundown came, that for the Jews started the next day, and so between when He died at 3 p.m. and sundown, they, of course, needed to get the body ready and make quick preparation for at least a matter of quick burial. You notice Joseph of Arimathea came, but also did Nicodemus. What did Nicodemus do on this occasion? Well, first of all, note some of the points on that slide. This time, far different than merely coming at night. Think about what was involved in obtaining the body of the Christ and what was involved in making it ready. Here Nicodemus, in a very open way, helped Joseph get that body ready. In his own personal expense, he brought a hundred-pound weight of myrrh and aloes. Very expensive. He thus personally invested of himself in this. And for all to know, he helped prepare that body for burial. It appeared to make little difference who may or may not have seen him. His faith had grown so much. His conviction so carefully advanced. that He was now an open disciple of the Master. One even willing to assist on this occasion. You'll notice then that as his faith had grown that much, we have now seen all three encounters. At first, he came by night. Enough interest to come, but no personal dedication yet. By the middle episode in chapter 7, now an open defender of the Christ, at least from the point of law, 
but there was as of yet no personal involvement. The final one, though, it seems his faith had grown to the point where he now not only was a personal disciple of the Master, but he was openly committed to assist him even in the light of public expectation. At this point, what about applications of all of that to you and me? May I say that we will develop it in only two ways. What about the first one? What about the teaching of the New Testament as it relates to a growing faith? May I say to each and every one of us, and it quite frankly is a matter of tremendous charge, but it's only because it's in the Bible. Where does your faith and mine stand now compared to the day we were baptized? Think back to however long that was. Maybe it was five years ago, maybe 20 years ago. It may have been 50 years ago. But there's something that surely must be true if we are to be pleasing to God. Has my faith, has your faith become stronger? Has it increased in that period of time? If it hasn't, may I suggest there's a problem? Here in a short period of time, Nicodemus's faith had advanced to the point where he was no longer merely a closet disciple at night. He was now an open defender of the faith. He was a one who was dedicated to the cause of the Christ. And even the public eye, he was happy to be a servant of Jesus Christ. What about you and me today? Do others where you and I work know that we're a Christian? If you and I work side by side with someone for 20 years and they never even know that we're a member of the body of Christ, that likely is a signal that we at most are a closet Christian. We at most are one who cloaks our discipleship in a way that others don't know anything about it. Nicodemus didn't do it that way. Look at a few of these verses with me. I would call to your attention... 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3 reminds us that the faith of the church of the Thessalonians, the faith of that set of individuals had grown exceedingly. The thought of that adverb is exciting, isn't it? It's not just that it had grown. Their faith had grown exceedingly. Is that true of you and me? Is that true of the Pippin Church of Christ? Has our collective faith grown exceedingly? I trust that we are working toward that goal. I trust that we are attempting with our personal involvement in things of the Christ so that our faith can grow exceedingly. But let's consider another verse in Romans 10, 17. How is that faith to come? I suppose any of us could ask, so I see that it's a great thing for faith to grow. How is this going to happen? May I say that God has made this simple. There is one and only one way that faith will ever grow. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It will require connection to, involvement with, thorough study of, and application of those things found in the Word of God. And therefore, the whole discussion of growing faith leads each of us to ask, how much time are you and I spending with the Word? 
our elders certainly see fit, and you and I are delighted to give thought to our public assemblies. So one of the things that could easily be asked, we know how central a part the Word of God has in our worship services. We devote 25 to 30 minutes and even sometimes more to a consideration of the Word of God, and we do that because faith will not come in any other way. And if I or other preachers that stand in this pulpit, when we do our job, we will give thought to the Word of God because no opinions of man, no matter how scholarly or how well eloquently presented, will lead to any increase in anybody's faith. Therefore, we're not interested in the New York Times or Aesop's Fables or even National Geographic. Quite frankly, we couldn't care less when it comes to features relative to presentation and worship. But what we do want to do is to present the book. It's plainly and simply the book. No wonder Paul told Timothy to preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5. But not only that, could I say, there are also Bible study periods. We are privileged to have one at 9.30 every Sunday morning and another one at 7 p.m. Wednesday night. Are you here? Are you here? with an open Bible and an open mind, ready to soak in the teachings that we'll, stay, we'll hear again at the Day of Judgment. May I say, those are precious times, valuable and worthwhile. We encourage our youngsters to be a part of them. Do we encourage ourselves as well? May I say that as our faith grows, we'll delight in those Bible study periods. We'll want to be nowhere else. But in addition to that, what about other times during the week? As you're riding in the car, do you perhaps like to listen to Bible sermons or Bible tapes? Or perhaps at your own house before you recline for the evening to use a portion of that day as well to reflect on the Word of God? It can be a very special time and very rewarding. To say the very least, our faith will grow in proportion to the amount of time we spend with the Word of God. So if we don't spend much time with the Word, our faith will never grow much, if any. And quite likely, the devil will find a way to throw problems, issues, and our faith may even regress. It may even move backward. I'm reminded, aren't you, of Luke chapter 17, verse 5. The apostles... Now please remember with me who said this. The very ones who watched the Lord work miracles and who were with Him for over three years day and night, and they said these three little words, increase our faith. They knew how important it was going to be to have more critical faith, and they begged the Lord to help them increase their faith. May those three words rest on our lips as well. May we be earnest in prayer. May I suggest if any man like wisdom... Let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And the promise of James chapter 1 is that God will answer that prayer. If you and I will pray for God to increase our faith, if we will earnestly involve ourselves in His Word, that will happen.
Notice this next verse in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and following. There are certain things we're commanded to put aside from our life. Things like envy and malice, and things like hatred and other things such as that. But then he says, desire the sincere milk of the Word. Why? That you may grow thereby. We'll grow in those spiritual ways when, again, it's the Word we implanted in our heart. Put aside the envy and the other things He tells us and to fill our heart with that which is the Word. One final passage. It's the one in 2 Corinthians 10 15. Paul there, as he wrote to the church in Corinth, he very powerfully commended them by highlighting their faith had increased. I hope our study today has brought us to appreciate what a glorified thought that is. But one last thing in the lesson will be yours. It's point number two. What if I'm ashamed of the Master? What if, unlike Nicodemus, my faith does not grow and I live through my life rather ashamed of the gospel? I won't speak of it in public. I'd like you to read with me Mark 8, verse 38. Closing verse to that chapter, Jesus has these words to say about those in that category. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What a frightening disposition. Jesus here says to those who are ashamed of me, they're ashamed of my words. They live a closet discipleship. Jesus says, I tell you what, when the day of judgment comes, I'm going to be ashamed of them. That doesn't bode well for one's disposition in heaven, does it? If on that day of judgment the Lord's ashamed of me, if I have lived in such a way that I have denied Him or at least refused to acknowledge Him, then He said He's going to refuse to acknowledge me and I'm going to end up lost. May your faith and mine be such that we're never ashamed of Jesus, not ashamed of His Word, and we not only live it and thus present a powerful example, we thus are a powerful beacon. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 We are likened to a city sitting on a hill. We are likened to the salt of the earth. We are likened to the candle that you don't put under a bushel, but rather that lights the whole house. Let's close our lesson again with one final set of statements about Nicodemus. We've looked at three encounters, and it seems to be a notable progression in his faith. He first came by night, but later he publicly defended him, and then later he personally involved himself in the burial of Jesus. I hope you and I can appreciate that our faith too should be a growing thing. Is your faith growing? Is it something that you again have appreciated to this point in your life? You can see the growth. If you can, please continue that. But if your faith has waned, if it isn't growing, then please make those changes necessary. Involve yourself in the Word. 
use that to, in fact, day by day, bring yourself to stronger, more vibrant consideration and discipleship. May I say that if you aren't a Christian, you need to start that journey today. Repent of your sins upon your belief and confess His name and be baptized. If, you could, if we could assist you in that way today, what a great day for you for all eternity. If you have become a Christian, though, but haven't been faithful, come back to your first dedication. Come back to that first love, and at that point, then begin to allow that faith to grow. With Jesus at your side, following the only God of heaven, that faith will grow greatly, magnificently. And today, if we could make acknowledgement of those sins in your life, as you repent of them and confess them to God, He'll forgive them, and you will again be faithful. If we could help you today in either of those ways, we encourage you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.